Our scripture reading this morning is, I believe it's Galatians 5, 7. Let's look at the bulletin. Yes, Galatians 5, 7. Everybody know where to find Galatians? Okay. Okay, first and second Corinthians, and then it's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. I can remember that because somebody told me if you say George eats potato chips, because Colossians comes next. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All right. Galatians 5 7. This is the New Living Translation. You were running the race so well. Who has held you back from following the truth? We ask God's blessing on the reading of his word. And we're very thankful for Ken Haggett being here with us today to share the message with us. Thank you for that long trek from Concord this morning. I had to get up early for that one. But you're used to that. Yeah? yeah? Good morning. morning. Stephen, thank you for the invite. I couldn't wait to get away from those people in Concord. It's true. It's true. I'm telling you, I'm tired of those people down there. They don't listen to a thing I say. They don't. About three weeks ago, I was on the platform and um, you know how earlier this summer it was a little dry. People were afraid, oh, it's going to be a dry summer. It's going to be a dry. So we prayed for rain. And three weeks ago, I told them they could stop. But obviously, evidently, they don't listen to me because it was raining in Concord this morning when I came up here. So uh, I'm glad to make it up this far north where people still have a lick of sense. <laughs> so thank you, Stephen, for getting me out of Concord today. <laughs> All right. Well, <clears throat> I think I noticed in the bulletin, I think I noticed, I'm not sure where my bulletin went, but that's okay, I don't need one, but I think I noticed that there's a blank in the title. There is? Okay. And I asked Stephen to put that blank there on purpose. And uh, there's a reason for that. Um, I was struggling what word should fit in that blank. Um, I narrowed it down to three. And I'll probably use these three words uh, interchangeably throughout, you know, because any one of them fits. Um, my first choice would be impeding the purpose of God. Now, impeding means to uh, retard in movement or progress by means of obstacles or hindrances, okay? Like a pair of gloves, guys, okay? Um, I also thought that encumbering um, which means to cause to have difficulty in moving or in accomplishing something. That could fit there, don't you think? 
Um, and hindering means to hold back or delay as by barring the way forward. So I was having a tough time, you know, trying to choose the best word um, to fill in the blank, so I left it blank. And uh, they, they pretty much basically mean the same thing. Um, <clears throat> no matter which one you choose to fill in the blank, uh, impediments or encumberments or hindrances to the purpose of God, uh, they can come from the outside or they can come from the inside, okay? Um, sometimes the purpose of God may be hindered by something I say or something I do, right? Um, other times it may be hindered by the words or actions of others um, that um, impede the, the purpose of God. So <clears throat> I'd like to look this morning at the experience of Gideon. For some reason, I come back to Gideon a lot. I, I, I like Gideon. I think, I think he uh, is a fine example of, of what to and what not to do, both in one. Um, but I'd like to look at him this morning to see if it might be um, the same impediments, uh, encumberments, or hindrances today that God had to deal with in his time, okay? So, <clears throat> I got a little side note first here. Um, when uh, looking at the Old Testament, you know that it is in part um, a historical record of Israel's relationship with Jehovah, right? In part, it's a historical record. But if left to that, it is nothing to us other than a historical record. Okay? So I believe that if we read the Old Testament with the appreciation of what God was able to do for Israel historically, he is still able to do for us spiritually then the Old Testament still has uh, relevant meaning in 2018. However, there's always a however, isn't there, dear? However, don't get the two mixed up. The cart before the horse, so to speak. Do the Old Testament justice by first reading it in the context in which it was written. That's called an exegesis. And then see if you can draw a personal application. If we draw the personal application first, we run the risk of interpreting it from our own perspective, right? Remember, <clears throat> an opinion is like a face. Everybody has one, right? An opinion is like a face. Everybody's got one. If we lose sight of the text's original meaning and everyone interprets scripture with their personal preconceived notions, we have a society not unlike the one described in Judges 17.6. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. 
And that statement is not a positive one about Israel. It's a negative one. The law of God had been forsaken and replaced by subjectivism. Subjectivism. There is no underlying true reality that exists independent of perception or consciousness. Our own mental activity is the only unquestionable fact of our experience. This is exactly what we are seeing today in our own culture. It is to be expected that the world will act like this, but this attitude, I think, has crept into Christendom. According to some, the state of Christianity today is at the same condition that Israel was in during the time of the judges. Christianity is being reshaped in the image and imagination of men. The rules are being replaced by false teachers and the Christian masses are quick to follow. And I came upon this article that highlights ways in which leaders have remade Christianity in the image of what seems right to men. And these are some of the positions that some of our Christian leaders have taken. Christians can mix New Age Eastern mysticism with Christianity. Pagans can go back to worship of their former gods because they were really worshiping the true God all along. Anything to get more people into churches, compromise of the gospel and truth because the end justifies the means. Our mandate is to take over the world, the governments, the businesses for Christ, thereby ushering in the return of Christ. Whole cities and nations can be saved and transformed. These are some of the things coming from out of our, the mouths of our Christian leaders. We are all little gods who can create reality by what we confess without mouths. Psychology mixed with Christianity, I'm okay, you're okay, suppression of the hard facts of the gospel. It is not necessary to exhibit moral behavior as a Christian as we are saved by faith alone. A denial of the importance of sanctification because once saved, always saved. And the last one, the fall of man was not complete, and he is able to choose to be saved because he ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. <clears throat> in a culture where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, it is not surprising to see that the Bible is being redefined or so I came up with seven impediments, encumberments, hindrances to God's purposes during the time uh, and shortly after um, Gideon. 
Um, but before we get into Gideon, what was the purpose of God for Israel? And I suppose you could come up with dozens of purposes. But I'm just going to focus on this one this morning. Um, to Abraham in Genesis 12, God said, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And then to Moses in Deuteronomy 28, he said, You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hands to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he is giving you. So according to the verses to Abraham and Moses, one of God's purposes for Israel was that they would be a great nation. Let us remember, however, that God's promises of blessing come with what? It's an R word, and it rhymes with responsibility. Responsibility. Good job. Good job. <clears throat> God's promises of blessing come with responsibility. Then, as now, God's blessings are to be shared and not hoarded, whether they be blessings of knowledge, money, material possessions, right? He gives that we may give also. Okay. Through Abraham and Moses, God said to Israel, his people would become a great nation and blessed. However, that's the third however this morning, dear. Are you keeping track? Huh? However, Judges 6 exposes the condition of the Israelites when God chose Gideon to overthrow their oppressors. Judges 6, verse 3. Now, again, I'm not going to read every word of every verse, and I'm going to fly through some of this stuff, not in an effort to change the meaning, but just hit the points that are relevant to our topic this morning, okay? Verse 3. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. So we have Israel in the time of the judges barely able to survive in a state of affairs far from the conditions that they were supposed to be enjoying according to the promises given to Abraham and Moses. You agree with that? Okay. So <clears throat> impediment number one to God's purpose of making Israel a great nation, impediment or encumberment or hindrance, number one, comes from outside Israel. That would be the Midianites. 
okay? They are keeping Israel from being a great nation. You with me? Okay. <clears throat> now God in his mercy heard the petitions of Israel and chose Gideon to be his instrument whereby he would overthrow the Midian impediment to his purpose. And Judges 7.1, early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. Okay, big deal. Well, kind of it is a big deal because on the north side of this hill where they were encamped was the cave of Endor. Bum, 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 bum. Where Saul visited the witch. Isn't it interesting that the line of battle drawn here in Judges, where there will be a great victory for Israel, is therefore the same area as it was at the time of Saul when the Hebrews would face the Philistines 192 years later and the result would be utter defeat for the Israelites. I wonder if you've ever experienced spiritual victory over some issue in your life or temptation, then through circumstances or choices be brought back to that same place only to suffer spiritual defeat. You ever been there? It's not very uplifting, is it, to think that something had been taken care of only to have it surface again, and this time you fail. It's spiritually humbling to be brought back to recognize our continued dependency on God's mercy and grace, but at the same time, it's good to know that God's mercy and grace are still there. Verse 2, Lord said to Gideon, you've got too many men. I can't deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. So you know how it went, the two-step process of narrowing down the army to 300 men. First, Gideon was to ask for volunteers to go home. Many of them did. And then he took the remainder of them down to the river to drink water and they, from that, he only selected 300. Verse 9, during the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Pura, and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp of the Midianites. Verse 13, Gideon arrived just as a man was telling his friend his dream. I had a dream, he said. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midian camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. 
His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. Wouldn't it be easy if answers for making decisions within the will of God would be this unmistakably apparent? Eh? Wouldn't it be so easy to have such a convincing method of understanding the will of God? Now remember, this is the same man who asked for a sign from God with the fleece how many times? Twice, wasn't it? Once be dry, once be wet, or vice versa. Okay? It's the same man. Apparently he's learned his lesson, because now he only got to get one answer. He bows down and worships and says, yep, we're going to attack. Okay? When seeking answers to life's decisions within the will of God, we find that they come in a variety of ways. Some may come with unquestionable evidence, while others not so apparent. In either case, <clears throat> when making decisions about life's perplexities, take your choices to the word of God. Therein, your answer may be more readily available than your thought. Well, when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp of Midian to turn on each other with their swords. This is the attack. Apparently, Gideon got the message. The army, um, Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messages messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them. In other words, we'll trap them. <clears throat> so all the men of Ephraim were called out and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. Great victory for God's people that day. The oppressor who hindered the purpose of God make them a great nation was overthrown. Amen? Oh, good. Amen. Okay. Judges 8.1. Now the Ephraimites did uh, as, as Gideon asked. Um, however, they come down after the battle and they confront Gideon and they say to him, verse 1, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us out when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. Ephraim was the most popular and most important tribe of northern Palestine and was jealous of its position of leadership. The Ephraimites had rallied immediately to Gideon's call, thus proving their power and fidelity to the national cause. However, that's four. That's five? Oh my. 
However, that's six, when they met Gideon, their injured ambitions and pride led them to reproach him for not calling them before the battle began. In the middle of this campaign to rout an impediment to God's purpose from outside comes an encumberment to God's purpose from within. And that is jealousy and ambitious pride of the believers. Similarly, today, there are many who criticize the one who launches an admirable project they hold back any support until it is apparent that the venture will succeed. Then they attempt to take credit for themselves. You know, <clears throat> I don't mind coming up here and talking like this to you because I don't know you that well. <laughs> In three weeks more, I'm going to do this same thing in Concord. There, they're going to think, he must be talking about, but I know that you're not doing that, so thank you. <laughs> Encumberment number two comes from within the people, God's people themselves, jealousy and ambitious pride. You ever known anybody like that? Their ambitious pride and their jealousy ruins what should have been a wonderful celebration Gideon and his 300 men, Judges 8, verse 4, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread. They are worn out, and I am still pursuing the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, Why should we give you bread or to your troops? From there, he went to Penuel and made the same request of them, but they answered as the men of Succoth had. Gideon's request was just and reasonable. He was performing a service for the whole nation of Israel and in a time of need, legitimately expected his brothers to supply the basic needs for his men to be able to pursue the enemy, and see the purpose of God to the end. Hindrances 3, 4, and 5 are closely related. Hindrance to God's purpose, number 3, again, comes from within. Lack of support for workers on the front lines. Verse 13, Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle, <coughs> And he goes back to those two towns that denied him. And in verse 16, he took the elders of the town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. Then he moves on to the tower, uh, to Penuel, and he pulled down the tower. And he killed some of the men in Penuel. Now if you go back to verse 9, which we did not read, he told the men of Penuel that he was going to tear down their tower of stone. 
He said nothing in verse 9 about killing the men. Okay, just hold on to that. But he said he was going to tear down their tower of stone. It was used for protection, this tower. The people of Penuel felt secure against the Midianites and Gideon also. They felt secure against him, thus contemptuously refusing to give aid to the Israelite Dan. And so on his way back, as promised, he went after the tower. And that's all he said he would do. Killing the men of that town was probably a result of them trying to protect the tower. Regardless of the details, encumberment number four, again, encumberment to God's purpose comes from the ranks of the believers themselves, and I call it spiritual cannibalism. You ever noticed how some humans behave if there's not a common foe or not a common goal? They tend to turn on each other, don't they? Very damaging to the purpose of God when his people display this behavior. Ask yourself what that stone tower might represent in 2018. Might it represent false security in what we have built for ourselves? Might it represent an impregnable wall of apathy toward the purpose itself? Encumberment number five comes from within the ranks of believers and its lethargic attitudes toward the purpose itself. Verse 22, I'll do this as quickly as I possibly can. The Israelites said to Gideon, after it was all done, rule over us, you, your son, your grandson, because you saved us from the hand of the Midianites. But Gideon told them, I'm not going to rule over you, nor is my son. The Lord will rule over you. What a guy. Reluctant at first, becomes a humble hero, realizes from whence comes his strength, and refuses, to offer, uh, refuses the offer to establish a dynasty. However, I do have one request, he said, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. 27, Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Oprah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. <clears throat> the ephod, as you know, was to be worn by the high priest. And so we wonder why Gideon established this rival worship. It might have been because the religious center of Israel was at Shiloh at the time, which happened to be located within the tribe of Ephraim. And so it might have been because of the arrogance of the Ephraimites and the confrontation with Gideon when he asked for help, that Gideon decided he's not going to Shiloh to worship. 
Whatever the reason, his decision to make an ephod turned into a disaster. And while we're on the subject of bad decisions, verse 29, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. Encumberment number six, I call decisions made to satisfy the desires of the flesh. And encumberment in Gideon's case, encumberment number six or hindrance number six or impediment number six comes from within the ranks of the believers. Both decisions he made really were to satisfy the desires of the flesh. Making the ephod satisfied self-righteousness and taking the concubine, of course, satisfied his lust. Rarely are decisions which are made to satisfy the flesh free from baggage. Oh, what a tangled web we weave. Judges 9. Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, which is Gideon, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, what's better? If you have all 70 sons of Gideon rule over you or just one? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. They were inclined to follow Abimelech. Then Abimelech hired some reckless scoundrels. He went to his father's house in Oprah, and on one stone he murdered his 70 brothers. But Jotham, the youngest son, escaped by hiding. And the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar of Shechem to crown Abimelech king. And when Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, listen to me, citizens of Shechem. One day, the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. And they said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, should I give up my oil by which both gods and humans are honored to hold sway over the trees? Next the trees went to the fig tree and they said, come be our king. But the fig tree replied, should I give up my fruit so good and sweet to hold sway over other trees? Then the trees went to the vine and said, come be be our king. But the vine answered, Should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and humans to sway hold over trees? Finally, the trees said to the thorn bush, Come, be our king. The thorn bush said to the the trees, If you really want to anoint me king, come and take shade in my refuge. Obviously, in the little riddle here of Jotham, Who is the thorn bush? 
Abimelech. Remember, the people had asked Gideon himself to be king, and he denied him. And so they ended up with the thorn bush, Abimelech. And Jotham asked, verse 16, Have you acted honorably and in good faith by making Abimelech king? Have you been fair to Jeroboam and his family? Have you treated him as it deserves? My last encumberment or impediment or hindrance, whatever, which one you want to choose, also comes from within. And I entitled this one, Forgetting What God Has Done For You In The Past and Making Irrational Decisions For The Future. Instead of reshaping the word of God to be relevant for our culture or lifestyle, maybe we ought to reshape our lifestyle to fit the word of God. God's purpose for Christianity is not unlike his purpose for Israel. He wants a group of people to be a light on a hill, an example of his character to the rest of the world. Seven impediments to the word of God that we looked at. I'm sure you could find others in this story alone. And there are certainly many others. Only one of the seven that I came up with this morning was from outside. The rest of them came from within. The first one, oppression from outside. The second, jealousy, ambitious pride. Lack of support for church workers, number three, spiritual cannibalism, number four, lethargic toward the purpose, number five, satisfying desires of the flesh over keeping the purpose pure, number six, and number seven, making irrational, reckless decisions. Judges 17.6 says, in those days there was no king over Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There's a really good answer to that, you know, and it's found in Proverbs 14.12. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. I think in our culture we've lost a few words that are, I I don't know, I, I call them impediment dissolvers. That's all I could come up with, folks, really. Impediment dissolvers. Uh, hindrance dissolvers. And I think we have lost sight of I don't know, maybe I got 10 words down here, that I don't think our culture as a whole recognizes anymore. But before I give them to you, Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So here are my suggestions. 
which <clears throat> if we paid more attention to these words and tried to live by them, uh, just might dissolve our impediments to, a God, to God being able to accomplish his purpose within us. Okay? Honesty. Integrity. Reliability. Truthfulness. I'm not sure we can teach these vocab terms anymore in our schools because they might offend someone. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Decency, morality, principled, standards, scruples, ethics. I think if we lived more by those terms that God might be able to accomplish his purpose within us personally, within our church. Our closing song is number 290.
Father in heaven, we are here this morning because we believe that you have a purpose for this world, for this church, for us as individuals. Sometimes we let our humanity get in the way of you being able to accomplish your purpose at a faster pace and more thorough than it should be done. Lord, help us to look within and be more honest, be more noble, be more truthful. Cast off the desires of the flesh so that this work that you have purposed might come to an end and we might at some point soon be with you in the earth made new. Amen.